family, Pinchas Cross is the founder of Sober. Sober is a platform that enables addicts to have a community that both helps them to seek healing, networking, and working. And he's going to talk about that. Before he does, I want to share something. You know, he grew up in a in Orthodox Jewish family in Montreal, and his journey has brought him to the U.S. Today, he's doing global work with people who are seeking their own solutions to their addiction, utilizing technology in one of the most profound ways I've ever heard of. And I think that while this is a very needed service, it is also one that is uh, in many ways piloting how we bring technology to everyday life in a supportive way. Uh, he likes to be called Penny. And with respect to that, let me share with you that I do not endorse companies. Uh, it, there's just no other way uh, to explain what he does without talking about his company. And I'm sure you're going to enjoy hearing about it. Penny is 22 years old. And he has done some amazing things. And I think he has an incredible future. More importantly, I think he's going to help a lot of other people to have incredible futures. So please enjoy this conversation with Penny. Hey, Penny. Hey, Janice, how are you? <clears throat> oh, I'm so wonderful. Even better because we're having this conversation today. And you know, I know that we're gonna be talking about addiction, but I think we're having a conversation about so much more than addiction because there's so much that leads up to feeds from, and it's important to know how we uh, how we work forward from it. Don't you agree? I 100% agree. Addiction leads into many different topics, which leads into kind of everything that goes on in the U.S. today, especially due to COVID. It's what yeah. I brought on. I, I, I was thinking about this, you know, as, uh, as, as we were dialing in, I was thinking addiction takes many forms as well. Sometimes people have addictions and they're not even recognizing it as such. And if they can catch those early addictions, it may help them uh, to wane away or weed away from some of the ones that follow that we more typically approach and we need therapy or deeper sessions of help for. Don't you think that's true? Well, I, over the last five years, actually, Three new addictions were added to the DSM-5. If you look at the video game pandemic, mm -hmm. cell phones, and food were all added to the DSM-5 as, as uh, notable addictions, which people overlook and people undermine the fact that it's actually something that can be harmful. And if I'm not mistaken, 17 people died in 2020 from, from uh, sleep and food deprivation because of video games. And then a whole bunch died from obesity because of food addiction. So they're really overlooked and undermined addictions that are extremely painful and harmful to everyone that's in them and the people around them. Well, I'll tell you something. Uh, if we, we all belong to many communities these days, right? We have our digital communities, our work communities, our faith communities, our play communities, our ethnic communities. Uh, when we look at uh, the Black community that I am a member of, we did see that throughout COVID, some things were revealed about, uh, uh, I, I don't say that everybody who's obese is addicted, but addictions to foods or to poor food habits, whether caused or you know self-imposed, uh, did contribute to a lot of the uh, COVID illness that we saw. Um, where does that lend itself to the work you do or to the recognition you have for the people who you're helping? So before I get into that, just something to think about when it comes, to, it's very hard to understand the food addiction itself. Mm -hmm. Because like you think to yourself, how can we be addicted to food? I like eating breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But if you sit down for a movie and you like having a bowl of popcorn, and it feels weird if you're sitting down to a movie and you're not having something to eat, or if you're sitting down for a movie and you're not having a drink with you. It, food addiction is semi the same thing when you have an addiction to food, wherever you are, whenever you are, you always have to have something in your hands that you're doing, eating, holding. So that's really what causes the addiction to food. And when you eat a lot, it pushes it pushes whatever is on your mind away. It kind of like shuts off your brain for the time being. That's that's really what drives the <clears throat> addiction to food. But what I'm doing, I believe it can help people in the industry because we're not really taking away 
the addiction, the actual, whatever you're doing, whether it's gambling, drugs, food, sex, mm -hmm. that's not the addicting substance. It's the trauma that it pushes away when you're in that stage of using that is the addicting substance. You know what? You're uh, helping a lot. I bet you're helping a lot of people other than me just with that statement right there. And I'll tell you why, because when we think about like smokers, then help me understand the smoking has its own implications that are like the illnesses that come from it. And the smoking itself may be an addiction, but it's the holding the cigarette and the having something to do with your hands that's also yeah. a part it's of the it. It's the fidgeting with the cigarette. It's the having my cigarette with my coffee in the morning. I'm guilty of that. I, I can't drink a coffee without a cigarette in the morning. It, yeah. it's, it's the habits that are built from doing that certain thing that when you stop smoking, you get so irritated, you get so mad, you can't think straight. You need to have a cigarette in order to survive. Like that's kind of the same thing. It's not really on the same level as drugs and alcohol or gambling or whatever, or sex and all these addictions that the, the, literally the story of life. But it's the same thing you're using to live and living to use in the same sense, because when you stop a cigarette, you get very irritated, you get very mad, you get edgy, you get impossible to be around. So it's on the same wavelength, but not on the same level of that. Well, you know, Penny, a lot of our family, and I refer to the people who are listening to us right now as our family, a lot of our family are aware of the stuff you and I are talking about. It's helpful to have the conversation because, you know, I think that when we don't talk about it, we can fall deeper as well, even if we think we already know it. But how, how far comfortable are you to share about your own life of addiction that helps to platform the conversation that you and I are I have nothing to hide. I'm, I'll go anywhere with my own life of addiction. Can you share with us how you grew up and tell us a little bit about your family um, as much as they are okay with that uh, as you platform right. us for addiction? Um, I grew up in a religious Jewish household. Um, my parents were religious. Their grandparents were religious. Their great-grandparents. It went on and on and on. So I grew up in a very traditional religious household. You know, we had everything. We had Shabbat dinner every, Shabbat every week. We don't touch our phones. We don't do anything. Anything. We had the Jewish holidays, uh, we went to prayer every morning, so all of that. And it's, I have to say, it's pushed on. It was pushed on a little too much as a kid. And then going to Jew, going to religious Jewish school is even worse because they push it even more and they push and they push and they don't ask you, are you okay with this? You know, do you understand this? They just say, do it, do it, do it, without really giving you an understanding of what you're actually doing. And that kind of drove me away a little bit. When I was like 13, and in the Jewish religion, we drink a lot. So when I was like 13, you know, I would go to, I'd go to, I'd go to these events and I'd have a drink when I, at 13 years old. And then when I was, me and my friend decided we're gonna try to smoke weed when we were 13. And it was, it was not the best experience, but I liked the feeling I got from it. So going from there, you know, I... Where I, were you then? Where were Montreal. you? Montreal. I was in Montreal, in uh -huh. school in Montreal. As I got a little older, 14, I started drinking more. You know, I started going out. Um, I started, I started like experimenting with pills, Oxy, Molly, uh, Xanax, and all of those. And then when I was four, but right when I turned 15, I left town. I left uh, Montreal, I went to Connecticut for school. That's when everything started going off the rails. You know, I started drinking a lot more. I started doing much heavier drugs. I went from using pills to cocaine. And I, I started smoking heroin at that point as well. I kind of got myself in a really bad rabbit hole. And I was there for three years in that school. So my second year, when I was 16 in that school, I went to New York. I would ditch school. I, I had my friend's car. He thought I had a license. I showed him a fake license. <laughs> And I would ditch school and I'd drive to New York and I'd stay there during the week. I had an apartment there and I would come back to school on the weekends. So they think I'm there. I didn't want them to know I was gone. So I always stuff something in my bed. So they think I'm asleep. Um, and when I was in New York, I started hitting the clubbing scene there. And I started, I, since I was already like a heavy drinker and heavy on cocaine, everyone loves that down there in New York city. So I got very deep in with these random people. I, the main club I used to go to was up and down in, in uh, the meatpacking district in Manhattan. And I got very close to this guy who used to sell cocaine. So I, 
I became close to them and I asked them, can I sell here? Can I sell there? So I started selling in New York and I started making good money, which really drove me to do even more drugs. And I didn't listen to the, uh, to the saying, where don't get high. How do you find customers? Easy. In, in New York, it's very easy. You walk up to any club, everyone wants, no one knows where to look. So you go and offer everybody. And eventually people start, you know, realizing that you're the person who sells. So instead of you going to them, they come to you and they tell other people to go to you. And it builds up. I lived in New York till I was about 18. My addiction got to a really bad point where I overdosed four times. I been arrested a couple of times. I got really, really badly screwed over. I screwed a lot of people over myself. So I left New York. I went back to Montreal, you know, to try to change things and try to try to kind of kind of get myself back together. I moved to Montreal, and that's when my gambling addiction just went through the roof. You know, I didn't have the New York club scene anymore. I didn't have that whole, I was still able to use drugs, but I wasn't able to really get my dopamine from selling it. So I started gambling extremely badly, and I was losing money hand over fist. I burned through every dime I had. I needed to find a way to make money. So I, I started a bunch of different random businesses there, which made me money here, made money there. And when I was 19, I went over to a lot of my dad's very wealthy friends because my dad, my dad uh, had a company which he sold in 2008. So he has a lot of very wealthy friends from Silicon Valley and different places like that. So I went to a lot of his friends and I, I, I took a lot of money from them and it ended up getting back from him, back to him. And he told me like, you have two choices, either go to treatment or you can leave. I told him I'll go to therapy. So I went to therapy. Um, I, I went there for about three months. I was going to meetings. I ended up ditching that. I got really heavy into it again. And the second time, six months in, my parents were like, you're done. You're going to treatment. So we drove down to New York. Penny, you weren't taking drugs at that time. I was. Gambling was your addiction or had you started back? I was doing drugs, but gambling gambling was like slowly taking over. It was, the, it, it was becoming the thing. Yeah, it was becoming my MVP product. You know, my number one I was yeah. doing. Um, so we drove to New York, we stopped at this random hotel and my parents like, you're going inside to meet this guy named Mark. I go in, I told him I don't want to go inside. So they called him to come outside. I met this guy, Mark, older guy. And he told me to come to a treatment center in Arizona. So I said, okay, fine, I'll go. Anyway, my brother's wedding, we went to his wedding, we had a great time. I did the last uh, batch of drugs I was ever able to do. And right after the wedding at 2.30 in the morning, I hopped on a plane to Arizona. I got the treatment. And that's where everything, everything got better there and also worse because I stayed sober ever since I walked into treatment. <clears throat> I'm three and a half years sober. I have not used, I've not gambled, I've not drank, nothing. But treatment was far from helpful in the way that I expected. I thought it would be a very, a good place to reflect, a good place to, you know, relax, a good place to feel yourself, be yourself, not worry about anyone judging you, which was exactly the opposite. They... Mm -hmm they just throw their beliefs on you. It's basically going from one belief to the next and they're not really giving you a choice to choose what you want to do or understand what they're trying to throw onto you. And that's kind of what brought me to making my company sober. When you leave treatment, number one, when you're in treatment, you're just going through a whole batch of therapy. They don't really give you life skills. They don't teach you how to really live your life on your own. So when you leave treatment, you're thrown into the back into the world and you're, you're like a mouse in the city. You don't know where to go. You don't know what to do. You don't know how to, how to get food, how to get a job, how to find a place. So what we do is we help people through integration by finding them a job, finding them a place to live, finding them a community wherever they are, whether you're Arizona, New York, California, Florida, wherever you are, we've, we'll find you a community. And kind of building a full-blown virtual sober community throughout the whole world while also giving them reintegration tools to get back their, to get their lives back together. So that's really how my story blends into what we do. It's, a, it's an amazing story. We're going to get deeper into it as well. I want to make sure, though, first we talk about, you know, you're an educated guy. I mean, you attended rabbinical school. Did you, did you intend to become a rabbi? No, I never intended to become a rabbi. I never wanted to become a rabbi. But my dad's actually a rabbi. He became a rabbi 10 years ago. And after he sold his company, wanted to vote it. He wanted to vote his life to helping people, which I think is an amazing thing, and I admire him for it. I just would never do it. Mm. Well, you wrote something, and I'm going to read it. You said the U.S. only treats 10% of addicts who need treatment due to things like non-coverage by insurance and inability to afford treatment. 
or services in your own business, your attempt to help bridge this gap in any way that has been really successful or piloted? Or are you guessing at it right now? So the actual statistic of it, no, I'm not. If you look at the US, there's 27.6 million addicts right now in America and only about two and a half million get to go to treatment because they either have money or they have a good insurance plan. The other ones that are stuck on the street and if they could go to treatment, it's a horrible treatment center that the owner is on crack. So it's really not a guessing game, it's a statistic. Do I think we can help 100%? I think a big part of the problem is the fact that most people don't go to treatment once, they go to treatment six or seven times and eventually insurance just says, you know, this isn't helping, we're done paying. That's what a majority of it is. So by us helping them reintegrate, by us helping them rebuild relationships, we're, we're reducing the amount of times they have to go. When you look at what you're doing at Solver, uh, does it matter how old the addict is? You can be 15 years old or you can be 65 years old. We can still help you. And it, I mean, but the approach to the treatment, does it have to be edited depending on the age? Not really. I mean, I went to treatment. I've, I've been in treatment with 60 year olds and they, they did the same exact thing I was doing. So not really. I mean, of course there is, they have families. So there is different ways of doing things because they have kids. They normally have a wife and kids. So it's a very different situation. They're in their like, literally their life is on the line. So it's a very different mindset they have than a regular person, a 22 or 23 year old going into treatment who doesn't have a family to look out for. That's you know, the difference. Hey, hey, Penny, a lot of the treatment models that we may be familiar with are uh, include family as part of the treatment. How is sober approaching that differently when it comes to family? Because that's Fortun a big part of the conversation you've had, right? Unfortunately, treatment centers do not put family inside as much as they should. When they say that they integrate family into your treatment they get on one call a week a family call a week which ends up normally going badly so what we're doing instead of having these calls which end up turning into a screaming match who can scream louder between the the kid and the parents <clears throat> when you're on our app you have a job you have a place to live you have a community you know you're taking your drug tests you're going to your meetings and you're doing it all through our app all that information is stored now your parents can actually see that information on their end. So your parents can see that you have a job. They can see you have a place to live. They can see your drug test results. They can see what meetings you go to and they can hold you accountable and they can see that you're actually doing what you need to do, which was set, which while the accountability piece comes in and also helps them rebuild trust and start to see you as, a, as their kid again or their loved one again, whatever it is. That's how we're trying to take that. So if, if, if you join the sober community and you're seeking help as an addict, then do you need to agree to give all the information that can be shared or do you have scaled back to how lean that can be before somebody is actually going to benefit from the program is what I'm you can give You can give zero if you want. I mean, you have to choose. It's all up to you. We for HIPAA compliance reasons, we have to give you the choice. But most people do want to rebuild a relationship. They just don't know how to. With trans, If you're an addict and you're not willing to be transparent, you're not willing to get sober. That's the truth. So if an addict says that I'm not yeah, willing to- Say that again. Uh, wow. If, if you're, you're addict, not willing to be transparent. You're not willing to become sober because with sobriety comes trust, with sobriety comes honesty, with with Sobriety comes transparency. If you're going to lie about this, about the menial things, why won't you lie about the big things? That's what I learned. And I made that mistake. I, I was the, before I went to treatment, I was the most dishonest person I have ever met. Like wow. I never said a word. Everything I did was to get things out of people, was to get people to do things for me. It was never with the intent of ever doing I, I did always, I did love helping people and I did a lot of it, but whenever I wanted something for me, it was always with the intention of me. Like no matter who I hurt, no matter who I crushed along the way, I'm going to get what I want and nothing's going to stop me. And that's one of the biggest problems in addiction is that, or with recovering addicts is that they don't really 
have sympathy or empathy for anyone around them while they're in their mindset of, I need this now? Well, you know, there are a lot of factors that lead to uh, substance abuse and addiction. I mean, it can be genetics, environmental, mental state of health. All of these things contribute uh, to where a person gets to the point of addiction. So, like, think about over COVID. We've had multiple pandemic, right? And we've had a lot of conversation about homelessness. And I was having a conversation with someone recently and they were saying, you know, the challenge in seeking to solve for homelessness is that addiction is going to get overlooked and people are just going to simply be counted as homeless. Um, talk about that a little bit. What's your perspective on that? My perspective on just what the pandemic did on its own. Pandemic has, if you look at how many people have died from overdose, how many people have died from alcohol-induced comas, how many people have died from drinking while driving, all of that, that number, that number, that number uh, is about triple the amount of people who died due to COVID. <laughs> and <laughs> that is the biggest pandemic, I believe. I don't, I, I believe COVID is a pandemic, I believe, but I also believe that people are overlooking what's really been killing people since the early 17, 1800s. That hasn't changed. You know, the, uh, the opioid pandemic, which is fairly new, but the actual drug and alcohol pandemic, which has been going on forever, has been killing people since the beginning of time. And no one really looks at it in that way. People look at it as, oh, you got a problem? Go get help. Like, go get therapy and you'll be better. It's not how it works. There's underlying trauma. There's underlying problems that come with it, whether you came from a, house, a household that, you know, that there was fighting all the time or your parents were very, were very distant from their children or your parents abused you, whether it's physically or emotionally, whatever the case is, there's, there's a bunch of trauma that's piled under what you're going through that's making you wanna push the, your feelings down so much that you don't wanna feel anymore. I, I don't know um, if you consider yourself an expert in, the, in terms of data, around addiction but i do yeah, have a couple of questions <laughs> i do i do have a couple of questions because one of the things you are is an expert on what addiction feels like and what it is yeah. <laughs> um and one of them is when we look at addictions are people starting their addictions earlier or are they having these issues in greater numbers or is it just that we're getting to the, you talked about transparency being one of the ways that you're going to really be honest about healing yourself are we just having more transparency to the evidence of addiction is it any bigger or worse than it is given population increases with account in percentages so if you look at the way addiction is gone 90% of people who have addiction have started using whatever they were using or using something at the age of 12 to 15 years old. It normally starts younger because it's ingrained in your head. If you have an addictive personality, you're born with an addictive personality. Now, it doesn't mean they have to use drugs or alcohol. It could have meant that they, you know, they like to play with a fidget spinner and they got addicted to it. That can start an addiction. Anything you do that is overdoing something can push you into that. But if you look at the most people who had addiction were people who have ADHD, people who come from abusive households, people who come from neglectful households, people who come from, from uh, people who come from households that are really not divorced parents is a huge thing. Uh, family member dying is a big thing. Like there, it's normally, there's normally something that triggers what you're feeling that makes you want to push it down. So I believe a younger age is when it starts, yes more or less. I mean, there are also people who start later, but normally you start something at a younger age and it gets worse over time. What types of addictions are you working with at Sober? I'm really interested in you talking a little bit more about that. And if it is an avenue for somebody who's listening or somebody who is listening and knows somebody who needs it, I want them to be aware of it. So we're, we're mainly working with drugs, alcohol, and gambling just because they're the easiest to track and it's the easiest for us to actually help. But any addiction, any mental health problem, we can really help with. It's not, we don't discriminate between any of them. They're all equally as harsh. 
equally as dangerous, equally as deadly. Um, there's just some that are easier to track, like drugs are easier to track with drug tests than food with a scale. Because the scale makes you feel like crap when you look down at it, you know, mm -hmm. you don't like what you're saying. So it, it all depends on how we can help. It's not what we can help. So we have to find different ways to help in different addictions by drugs, it's drug tests, by alcohol. It's, it's also, you can take tests for that. By gambling, you can block off bank accounts. You can give secured bank accounts. There's different things you can do. Um, I've yet to find a way to, to actually um, to actually like put the put people like who are who have addiction to sex or addiction to food how to minimize that and us track it i'm still trying to find a way for that but we'll help any addiction if you have an addiction you want to come on the app and sign up and reintegrate into society it doesn't matter where you are or where you're at we'll we don't turn anyone away well you know we're gonna uh we we, we are showing people um how to uh how to approach and how to sign up as sober. Here's the question I have. What do they need to do for themselves before they get to that point? What, what's the journey they need to take in order to be serious about that? I don't want to represent that you're some, you know, magical answer. There's work that somebody has to do themselves, right? Well, number one, with any recovering addict, there's one thing you have to do. You have to choose you want sobriety. If you don't want to get sober, you're never going to get sober. If you doubt that you want to get sober, you're never going to get sober. If someone forces you to get sober, you're never going to get sober. So admit to yourself that you have a problem and then make a conscious decision to say, I want to get sober is number one. Number two, if you're on drugs, your uncle, go to detox. Otherwise, you're going to have seizures and heart attacks. Number three, I would, I would advise going to 30 days of treatment because it does help, but it only helps for 30 days. I don't think you should go for six months. I went for 13 months mm -hmm. in treatment centers. I do not think any of them were helpful. I think they gave me abstinence, which was cool, but they didn't give me tools. Mm -hmm. So I believe 30 days of treatment is good because it gives you 30 days of abstinence. It gives you time to be around other people who are going through similar struggles. Then... I think we can help the best. If you don't go to treatment, we can still help. I just think taking the steps taking the steps before going to treatment, going to detox, admitting to yourself that you want help, that's really the best steps to take before joining sober. You know, you're one of the youngest entrepreneurs, I think, of a serious business uh, that is not simply I shouldn't say simply, not uniquely tech. I mean, you're offering a service inside of this tech. Um, what's your dream for this company? To help as many people as possible. I mean, this is uh, it's an amazing company and it's a company that can last through anything, whether it's a recession or whatever comes. The recessions, the government gives a lot of money to mental health and addiction companies to help them stay afloat. So there really is no downside to actually running this like a good old fashioned American business and not trying to take a public just to cash out like everyone else. Mm -hmm. So my dream for this company is really to build it up where we have millions, of, tens of millions of users using it around the world and we can actually build the largest community of recovering addicts in one space. Wow. Wow, Penny. Um, you know, a lot of us have friends and family, co-workers who are battling with forms of addiction. How do we help them and get them uh, thinking uh, uh, in a healthier way about their addictions without alienating them or pushing them away from help? Because as I sit here and I hear you talking about what you're doing, somebody's got to be receptive of it. They've got to be ready and wanted. Um, and I've seen circumstances where people have tried to get people to open up and, you know, I don't know if it's timing, I don't know if it's approach or, you know, I know the person's readiness themselves, the addict's readiness has to be a part of it. But how do you even begin that? Are there signs that you look for or methodologies you employ to when it's not that formalized help yet and it's just you and that other person? So the first thing to look for is if an addict comes to you and starts admitting stuff to you but doesn't, but doesn't in a very like menial way, they want to get something out of you. That's number one. 
you can't force someone to get better. You have to let them make the conscious decision. Sometimes hit, well, all the time, hit it. addicts need to hit rock bottom before they'll get better. If they don't hit rock bottom, then they'll go right back until they hit the rock do you bottom. Think, do you think that's the truth for every addict, that they got to hit rock bottom? Or do they, or, or have some event that occurs in their life? That they can always have that effect that can happen, but... The reality is, is until you hit rock bottom, you'll never understand what you're what you didn't what you didn't miss, you know? Like until what you does bottom hit. look like? What does bottom look like to the person who's not the addict? How do you know? Because I'm still trying to get to how to help somebody. Um, and you can see you've got me tearing up a little bit. Um, what do you what do you need to know as the non-addict? about what rock bottom looks like or when is the right time. Rock bottom near death. It looks different for everybody. As a regular person, as a, uh, someone who doesn't have an addiction, rock bottom for you may be losing your job or rock bottom for you may be your car breaking down or rock bottom for you may be your phone smashing and you need a new phone but you can't afford it. That can be rock bottom. But for right. an addict, the rock bottom is I've alienated everybody in my life or I've destroyed everything I've ever built, or I've, I, I've pushed away every person who ever liked me or wanted to talk to me, or I've used, my, I've used so many drugs that my body's about to shut off. A rock bottom can be anything. It really can be. There is no, this is rock bottom. But the cool thing about being an addict is that when you're an addict, it's a horrible feeling. But once you get sober, you have what you have the opportunity that nobody else has is you're literally you're not starting from zero if if somebody <clears throat> loses their job and they run out of money they're at zero if someone has an addiction they go to treatment they come out they're not at zero they're at minus because no one will talk to them no one will help them they have no money they're in debt they owe people money everybody hates them everyone thinks that they're a thieving, conniving piece of crap. <clears throat> That's really what goes through people's minds. So when you overcome that and you actually become successful, even with all those challenges that I just mentioned, it just makes it for a much stronger and more sustainable life going forward. So rock bottom can be different for everybody. There is no, this is rock bottom. But I don't believe everyone needs to hit rock bottom. I do think that most people, until they hit rock bottom, they're going to go try to find the rock bottom. Uh, well, you didn't have a sober. You had to invent sober. Um, what keeps you from going back? The people I help. I, I have uh, six people that I sponsor. I started a... I started a uh, fund about six months ago to help put people in treatment people who can't afford it um well i didn't really raise i i me and my father put in money and we put a bunch of people into treatment and we're going to start raising money to put people through treatment who can't afford it but that's really what keeps me sober is helping people and seeing them grow from what i've done makes me want to stay sober every day also what i have i mean when when i went to for the treatment, I lost everything. I alienated everyone. I pushed everyone away. And now, you know, I'm on amazing terms with my family. I have a, I have an incredible business I built. I've a, actually just got engaged. I have a beautiful fiance. And well, I don't want to lose that. And if I ever did relapse, I would be, I wouldn't be, whether losing it or not, I'd be pushing it away. So all of that together mixed in with helping people keeps me still. Penny, are you still an addict whether you're using or not? You know, like you can be a diabetic and not be in crisis. Are you an addict whether you're using or not? No, but you are, you, there is instances where you can be. I believe if you recover, you're not recover, you're never recovered. You're always in recovery, but you're not an addict anymore. But if you stop using drugs and alcohol, but you still live the same life you lived before, you still have the same mindset of everything's horrible. And you know, my, I blame my life on this. I blame my life on that. You're always depressed. You're still technically an addict because you never actually left the state of mind that you were in. You just stopped using drugs. You still stopped drinking. So that case, yes. In the case of someone who, who is in recovery, in constant recovery, and is working on himself every day, I do not believe so. 
Well, you talked earlier about, and the, the reason I asked that question segues to this, you talked earlier about uh, helping people into employment. Um, and I'm thinking it's healthy employment because it's employment that not only are they ready and skilled for, but they have a community that ensures they have a place to have that relationship to when they start to feel unsafe or they start to feel the addiction coming on. Um, I don't know anybody's approached it quite as you are, although there are many places that suggest they are helping with addiction and re-employment. Um, your experience informed you a lot, but where did the other stuff come from that's helping you to be so phenomenally, um, I, I, I wanna say the word successful, I don't know how you measure it, but successful in helping people reconstitute lives. So, I mean, I, when I was in sober living, they wanted to get me a job at McDonald's. And at McDonald's, you know, you make no money, you work your ass off. I, I, basically, I, I went there to try to get a job and they didn't help me do anything. And I realized that most people who are coming here are running around town for five, six weeks trying to get a job at McDonald's or St. Hubert or whatever, or Wendy's or wherever they're trying to get a job, making no money where there's no room to grow. They spend eight months at this job and then they leave and they didn't gain any normal skill sets to get a normal job. So what I did was I looked at the industry that, that lost the most workers due to COVID, the hotel industry, who is, they're crying for workers right now. And I found an executive at Hilton that called them up and I said, I have a pilot I'd like to try. I have a bunch of recovering addicts on my app. You need people. Why don't I send you people? They're cheap, they'll work hard and they can grow. And they agreed to it. So that's really where that came from. So you actually have a job that you can grow in and we're gonna be moving from the hotel industry to other low hanging fruit businesses, whether it's becoming a garbage man that make very good money or you know, working at a construction company where you're always on the move, working at a mechanic, becoming a plumber, whatever you wanna do, you can grow at. You don't have to work at a fast food restaurant flipping burgers for the rest of your life. There is or, or if you've never had a job, you get to start there with the regular part of something that can help you grow. Yeah. Yeah. That's really I, where it came from. I love that model because you know, in my line of business, I'm really interested in what you're doing. And I can see so much promise in it and so much potential. And I'm delighted to talk with you at a different time about that. I, I just feel so in this moment, celebrating of what you're doing and how you are approaching it, I think may have, no, I won't say what I think. Let me ask you, do you think the way you're approaching it may have some elements of, um, we talked about people having to hit their rock bottom, may have some elements of people now feeling safe to come into your community who haven't quite hit rock bottom and you can help save people from having to go there. And, and, and I don't want this little Southern Baptist girl to have this idea that you're gonna save people. Um, I am, I mean, we both have our relationship with our faith and, you know, I, I, I just am thinking that younger people grew up in an app world and maybe they trust the evidence of what you're doing and the tools you're using to do it in a different way than an older addict might. And so maybe there's some opportunity to help people before they hit rock bottom. I do believe with what we're doing, we can help people miss rock bottom um, because we're not giving you a bunch of therapy and saying, deal with it. We're giving you a life to actually build. We're not just making a life where you can get a job and find a place where we're bringing family into the mix. And we're building the bridge between life and family and mixing it together. And recovery is right in the middle of that. Normally recovery is what is, what is the wall. You know, addiction is the wall between family and success in life. So once you build a bridge over that wall, there is no more, you know, I have to climb over the wall to try to see what's going on. The transparency is whole. The, the transparency between family and what you're doing becomes one. And I think that's the answer to addiction. 
everyone's trying to give all these answers where therapy is the answer, this is the answer, that's the answer, AA is the answer. I don't believe any of that. I think the answer between to addiction is connection. The answer to addiction is trust, is honesty. That's the answer to addiction. And nothing else matters if you don't have those three attributes, which is honesty, trust, and connection. If you don't have that, you don't have a community. You don't have a life to actually build. So you can try all you want going to AA. You can try going to treatment for the rest of your life, but you're not going to get better if you do not understand that the number one attribute is honesty and the number two is connection and number three is trust. Without those three, addiction does not go away. You know, I have a friend, uh, John, who told me years ago when he was dealing with some things in his own life, something that has stayed with me. And it was, we're only ever as sick as our darkest secret. And I think what you're saying really brings light to that comment. Um, and I think it may be valuable whether you consider yourself addicted or not. I think what you're seeing has a lot of truth in it, in healing relationships and not just addictions. Yeah, I agree. It, it, has, yeah. To do with, it has to do with everything. This is just, it can go with addiction, it can go with, with relationships, it can be mental health, depression, anxiety, it can really intertwine between all those different illnesses because most everyone who has addiction has a mental illness, whether it's depression or anxiety. Everyone who has a mental illness has a demon inside them, which is the same thing, essentially. We talked, you talked about um, family. What about those addicts? And I'm thinking now of some of the people who I have uh, met and seen and learned about who don't have family in their operating in their lives right now because they're uh i'm going to speak particular to a community and that's a lot of the young uh, lgbtq community who are not accepted by their family for that and so their addictions are layered on top of not having a family where does sober help them or does sober help them you don't, when we say family, of course, the first thing that comes to mind is parents, siblings, grandparents, aunts and uncles. Mm -hmm. You can't choose the family you were born to. You could choose the family you choose to live with. And that's really what it is. A family can mean five recovering addicts that you went to treatment with that you really liked and you hang out with every day. And you consider that your family. A family doesn't have to be your blood relatives because night, a very high percentage of people with addiction their blood relatives are more toxic to their recovery than, than uh, the drugs are. So you it, doesn't have, it doesn't have to be blood relatives. It can be anyone. It can be your sponsor. It can be your friend. It can be your, your, your friends from school. It can be your friends from treatment. It can be your sponsor. It can be anybody who you choose to bring in as your family to really be your family. You know, you can't be all things to all people. I realize that, Penny, and... Uh, on this podcast, everyone has the freedom to have their own conversation. Um, I don't endorse stuff. I am just so enamored of the work you're doing and the way you are approaching it that my enthusiasm may sound like an endorsement. I'm truly wanting people to be aware of what you're doing to, to you know, uh, secure their own endorsement if they choose it or not. Um, and so when I ask you this question, it's more because I'm, I'm hopeful about what you're doing in a different way. When we look at over the last two plus years where we've had, we're, although we're in endemic now, according to many, we've had multiple pandemic circumstances. We've had uh, the virus itself. We've had the impact to the financial industry on that and the market and the supply chain. We've had uh, uh, social justice and equity, all of this converging in this one moment. Um, when we look at that and we see where addictions have quote unquote flourished in that, how then do people um, use sober 
as a first step versus a second or third step? Or do you see sober as a part of a larger solving or solution? I see sober as, as the standard in the industry. You go to treatment, you do your 30 days, you jump on sober, we help you reintegrate. That's what I see sober as. I don't see sober as, as, the, as solving the problem. I see sober as fixing the problem because there's no way to solve addiction. It doesn't exist, but you can fix the way they treat addiction. That's what I believe sober can be. And let me just ask you this um, before we go into four for four, okay? Sober in terms of a person's um, personal identity and security, how does that operate? If somebody's interested, how do they feel safe or, or, or confident in the security of their personal data? We have one of the most secure apps in the world, actually. We have our own servers, which we hold all of our data on. Every single thing on our app is 100% anonymized. So if you're a client, you put your name in your information, it automatically gets anonymized. Your name is scraped from our, from our data automatically. Uh, we have full cybersecurity teams, lawyers, everything to make sure that security of our clients' data is 100% secure, 100% safe, unhackable, untouchable, and invisible. And it is global. Well, so we're launching in the U.S. We haven't fully launched our product yet. We've done a mini pilot. Uh, we're launching our product U.S.-wide uh, within the next 30 to 60 days. We're still middle running pilots right now. And we're launching our product in Canada in about three to four months. Once the U.S. and Canada kind of take off, that's when we're going to launch it globally. And you will be instituting those languages at that time. Currently, it is an English-based app. It's English-based for now. Eventually, we'll be making it French, Russian, Chinese, Japanese, and Hebrew, Yiddish, and everything else. Wow. Well, you know what? All I can do is just just pray for you to have the most outstanding success in this company ever. Your mission, your vision, your values, they are so lined up with helping us to have healthier people so we can have a healthier world. And I am so grateful that Sarah introduced me to you so that we could have this conversation. I want to go into my four for four now. So I'm going to ask you four questions. And you give me four answers to each question. And the first question is, Penny, you get to have dinner with four people from any point in history, past to present. No futuristic people who are designed yet. Um, who is at your dinner table and why? Do they have to be alive or dead? Or they don't have to be alive now, but they have to have lived or they can be present, they can be alive now? Number one is always gonna be my fiance. Um, most fascinating person I've ever met. Oh. Number two, I'd have to say, so in, in the cold Jewish religious culture where I come from, uh, there's a guy who, his name is the Lubavitcher Rebbe in New York. I would love to just pick his brain and sit down for dinner with him. And for people who don't know, give a little bit about who he, he was. He was the holiest person of his time. You know, people from around the world used to go to him for blessings. Jews, non-Jews, everybody. Presidents of the United States used to go to him for blessings. I would love to just pick his brain. I feel like there's so much knowledge in there that I would just love to hear a fraction of what he's got. Um, I would love to sit down with Putin, honestly, and, get, and just hear how what goes through his mind on a daily basis. You, you'd have Putin at the table with these two, with, with your I just, I, I just want to know what goes through his mind. Like, what's going through your mind with this whole Russia and Ukraine thing? I'm just really curious. And then Zelensky. I would love to have Zelensky at the table also. You know, to have, we'll have a mediator between the two. Now, if I was able to sit with four people, those would be my four. So who did you have? You had your fiance. The Rebbe. Yeah. I had Zelensky, the, yes. the uh, president of Ukraine, and Putin. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah, you need some other folks there. And I'm going to come to dinner just so I can help you out, okay? Yeah, I need a mediator. 
I'll be your mediator. <laughs> I want to see that dinner. <laughs> um, let's go two for, uh, two for four. Um, what are you listening to and why? Whether it's music or podcast. I listen to Simon Sinek every morning. When I, when I come to work, I put on an hour of his videos. I love his leadership courses. I love his take on how leaders should be on how leading something doesn't mean taking charge. It means being helpful to the people in your charge rather than taking charge. I, I really, really, really find that fascinating. Uh, another one, David Goggins. I was introduced to him from a very big high man in treatment. And he just, he hypes me up in the morning, gets my blood flowing. Uh, music, I love, I, I love country music. I know a lot of people around me hate it. People hate going to my car because I listen to it all the time. And I love Joe Rogan's podcast. Very interesting, honestly. The people who bring it on, he has a lot of very interesting guests. Yeah, uh, country music. I grew up in North Carolina, so you don't grow up in the time I did, and you don't, you know, you don't listen. Also, a lot of the country artists um, who I love, they are really, I mean, country music is storytelling, isn't it? You know, yes. and like Miss Dolly Parton, oh my God, you know, I, my, I have several t-shirts with Dolly on it. And I tend to like a lot of the old country, uh, but new country is starting to be thoughtful toward old country a little more now. So I won't get into the artists or anything, but I really do lean when I pull out my playlist, it's usually the older country artists on it. I like the older country artists. I think they're very, I think they have meaning, a lot more meaning to their songs than the new country artists. Yeah, and their instrumentation, I think, was just brilliant. So I'm, I, I, I love it. Uh, so we meet on that point. We meet on a lot of points here. Um, let's go three for four. Let's go three for four. Four books you recommend to our family. And as you've alluded to, and I told you, the people who listen he in here are our family. So what four books do you recommend they read and why? I wish I had four books. I've only read three books in my life, though. Uh -huh. um, I can recommend the three books I've read. Uh, okay. Number one was Richard Branson, the story of his life, of how he started his company, how he started Virgin, how he traveled the world on a hot air balloon, and really how he integrated family and his family into the business without ever turning them away or out, without ever neglecting. I find that fascinating. Mm -hmm. Number two, which actually this, uh, this is, I find in one of this guy, one of the most fascinating people, Dax the Silva, the founder and CEO of Lightspeed. Uh, he's an extremely close family friend of ours, and he he has an incredible story about he's a, he converted to Judaism. He grew up Catholic, and he has an incredible story of how he him as a minority, and he's he's a he's a gay minority, and he started a multi billion dollar company, public company today, and it's honestly it's an incredible incredible thing that he's done. So he has a book called the Age of the Union. I think it's extremely. How old is he now? Uh, 42, I think. Wow, that's going to be very called, good. So he has a book called Age of the Union talking about how to preserve the earth. I don't fully understand this book. I just, I think it's very interesting how he wrote it and his story in itself. I think it's an extremely interesting story. Um, and number three- Do, do you read your books as paper or do you read digitally? I read, these books I've read as paper. I normally don't read books. I've only read these three books in my entire life. So I was going to, so do you highlight in, in your books? Do you highlight them? Not really. Not really. I just like to read, read them and then, you know, I, I put them away. Number I three, respect you. I highlight so heavily. I highlight so heavily. And then there's a man named Bob Luxemburg. He's a guy from Montreal. He has a, he's a real estate mogul. And he wrote a book called Mind, Money and Wealth, teaching the younger generation how to really create generational wealth rather than, you know, the young wealth where people are creating wealth, they're spending all their money and then they're going broke before they turn 30. So it's a very interesting book as well. And Have you finished that book? Yes, I finished all three of those books. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, look, I love that. Maybe your fourth book will be the one you write. I think so. I think my fourth book will be my book. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll ask you to come back and talk about that fourth book, okay? When it comes out, we'll definitely do another episode. 
Okay. Uh, so now we're going to go four for four uh, before I let you go because I'm enjoying the time so much. And I am so grateful for all the help I know you're giving people um, on how to have a new approach that can be a deeper and a better approach to solving for addiction, to healing and to helping. Here's four. Four pieces of advice you give our family um, and why. If you give advice to, in this moment, uh, Penny, that you have received from someone else, be kind enough to say who it was. First piece of advice, and this is not from someone else, this is from my experience of growing up. I grew up in a very, very, very lucky family. Um, my family always, always extremely successful. Um, we never really had any hard times. And I have learned this from a very young age. Success is not about how much money you make. Success is not about how big your business is or how big your business becomes. Success is how well how, what type of family you build, you know, how well you treat your family and what type of love you show them. That if you can, if you build a beautiful family and you build something that's really gonna last generations, that's true success and that's true fulfillment in life. And my grandparents are, both my grandparents and my mom said are Holocaust survivors. And they're both, my grandmother, all her, my grandfather's entire family died in the Holocaust. And my grandmother came back here with her mother father and two sisters and they I have 114 family members including my my parents aunts and uncles and cousins and that's from two people that's gonna last for generations to come so, so I that is success in my mind that's number one piece of advice if you try, if you try to chase a dollar if you try to chase a you know try to chase something physical try to chase uh a car, a house, whatever it is, you're never, it's never gonna make you happy. Um, <clears throat> that's number one. Number two, for anyone who has an addiction or who's in recovery, you know, it's a tough battle, it's a hard battle, and it's something that's gonna tear you down and it's gonna kill you every day, but it's never gonna bury you. But there's definitely a big, beautiful light and a big, beautiful sun at the end of the tunnel when you get out. Uh, number three, I, I'm probably getting this quote wrong, but I, I love this quote. Money can buy you a clock, but not time. Money can buy you a house, but not a home. Money can buy you friends. Money can buy you, uh, money can buy you friends, but not friends, but not uh, love, I believe. I, I'm getting it like partially wrong, but you understand where I'm going here. I heard this yes. from, uh, I actually heard this from Bob Luxemburg. And that, that I don't remember the full rest of the quote. That quote is an incredible quote. And then the last piece of advice is, you know, no matter where you are, there's always going to be a rainstorm before the sunshine comes. So even if you hit tough times or if you hit something that's hard for you to deal with or something that's tough for you to get through, just remember there's always sunshine after a storm and just keep going and you'll eventually get there. Rain never lasts forever, right? I look, I'm just sitting here thinking, and you're how young? How 22. old? <laughs> 22. Oh my goodness. You have graced this this conversation so well. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you so much From for my heart me. I appreciate to your home. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really love I, I love this. I really enjoyed this. It was incredible. And I love being able to share my story to help people. I believe that, I don't believe I have the most insane story. I believe I have a story that can show people that there is always light at the end of the tunnel. Mm. Uh, the, the, the way you share is so direct and so intimate. Um, I, I, think, I think you're a born teacher and, and, and you know, teaching is a part of healing. Um, I, I did not ask you, what do you think your calling in life is? Or if you believe there is a calling in life, do you, Penny? I believe my call, I believe everything happens for a reason. And I believe I had an addiction or I went through what I went through in order to do what I'm doing today. That's my calling. I, 
I, from the day I started this business, I didn't care how much money it makes. I don't care. Uh, I care about, of course, the money so I can support my staff and support my people. Right. But for me personally, I don't care about that. I, it's not why I got into this. I got into this to help people. I got into this because I believe in the cause that we're that we're going after. And that's been the driver for me from the day I started. It's going to be the driver for me until the day that this thing flourishes into what I know it will be. So that's really my calling, I believe. When you talked about those two people and then how many did you say? 214 people? Sure. Um, oh my God, my, I have 114 cousins. 114 cousins. Cousins, you, like cousins and cousins, kids and married yeah, yeah. cousins. Do, do, do you guys ever connect with each other? Do you have a way that we you all stay? live? We all live within within a mile of each other. Oh, wow. We all go. We have we have a massive compound upstate. So we all go every weekend to that compound together. We're we're, we're the closest family you'll ever meet. We're together every day. I see my cousins almost every day. Oh, that's so beautiful. My grandparents had one dream to have all their kids live in the same city and all their grandkids try to stay in the city. So I only have six cousins that ever left. Wow. wow. That, that's we, all, we all work in the same building. My grandparents have a big building for their company. Everyone has an office in that building. So it's like very tight that family. Okay, look, we got to do a check-in at some <laughs> point in the future that we define and we are intentional to. I want to see how uh, sober is progressing. I want to check in and see how, not just how it's progressing, but where it's progressed to. I think you're on to something that can be very curative and that can have a real place in history on its own. I hope so. I mean, I, as long as it can help people and really do what I believe it can do, I think that you're right on that. Okay. Well, from my heart to your home. Thank you. Thank you so much.